Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. In this episode, I got the opportunity to catch up with Kevin Cush, the absolute thoroughbred entrepreneur who was largely responsible for the massive success of PMAT, a privately held operator of shopping centers out of New Orleans. But before Kevin was buying $40 million shopping centers, he was flipping cars in high school. If you met Kevin, you wouldn't be shocked because he's got such a great personality that I'm excited for you guys to get to know a little bit better in the episode. So let's jump right into it. Hey, everybody. Aaron Zucker here, the host of Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. Wanted to take a quick second and thank the guys over at CazSource, who are a phenomenal agency that helped me put together this idea of creating this podcast into a reality. They're willing and able to not only put together a podcast, but any other great marketing content that you may need. And I'd highly recommend reaching out to them. The man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Kevin Cush, joining That's me. I appreciate me. it. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me, Aaron. So let's just get right into it. Tell me your background. Like, Start from real way back. Like, Where are you from? How'd you grow up? What was your upbringing like? Sure. So I'm a mutt, is, uh, is what I'd say. Out of all places, I was born in Rhode Island, moved around the Northeast a little bit, and then ended up in Nashville before I was 10. Grew up in Nashville and still have a place in Nashville and went to Tulane and ended up in New Orleans through that and uh, ha- have a home there. And that's where our business is, is based, out of uh, Mandeville, just north of New Orleans. Yeah. Although we don't own any assets there. Yeah, <laughs> which I can relate and to. We don't do much uh, other than have a good time, we say. I'm shocked you would ever have a good time. <laughs> uh, and I'm also just totally shocked that you went to Tulane, right? For those of you who don't know Kevin, he's bigger than life personality. He's worth having a good time with. Even if you don't know if you're going to do any business with the guy, he's worth just being around through osmosis. He's a good friend. So tell me about your upbringing, your parents. What did they do? Sure. My mother is always in the nonprofit sector in various ways and probably has more worth ethic than anybody I've seen in my entire life. The total commitment to cause, which the nonprofit world needs that and is very under-resourced in that. My father did big corporate business in the printing press industry. Talk about an industry that got disrupted prior to transferring into the nonprofit sector as well. But I'd always done a little bit of real estate stuff on the side, and, and I liked those uh, more entrepreneurial sort of ventures that he would dabble in here and there. So was that the inspiration to get into this business was um, through your dad? It opened my eyes to that business. I would say I've always been looking to add value and find deals, right? So this started with uh, buying and selling paintball guns because I happened to like paintball. I would uh, uh, buy on eBay in its infancy and sell on this uh, specialist website called Warpig, where they were paying much more premium versus the infant nation eBay. That transferred to liking cars and uh, constantly searching through this magazine, Wheels and Deals, and understanding the market for vehicles as I was going to have to purchase my own car. So were you like into flipping cars? Yeah, I flipped some cars here and there. I love that. So cars went to condos, condos went to houses, and kind of a natural progression somehow, some way to end up in commercial real estate doing the similar business plan of, of adding value to underperforming assets when you value a market and understand where things should trade and find the right buy. None of this surprises me. I didn't know you were born in Rhode Island and moved around. I knew that we learned recently that you grew up in Nashville basically for the rest of your upbringing, but you flipping paint guns and then cars, 
based on my limited time with you, does not shock me whatsoever. And what drove you, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So what drove you to go from flipping paint guns to cars to real estate? I mean, was it the adrenaline rush of the zeros, the additional zeros on the transaction size? I mean, yeah, absolutely. And uh, there was the ability at that time with the financing markets to be able to make that happen with respect to readily available financing. Now, things are a little bit different now with the criteria you have to have in order to do what I was doing then. There was sure. a, a whole subprime mortgage crisis that occurred uh, in the interim. Yeah, give us the time frame of all this. So when did you start flipping cars? What year is this? Then sure. when did you end up at Tulane? Like, help give us some context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I ended up in Tulane in 2002. I was flipping cars in high school and part I of the love time. That. In, I uh, absolutely love that. You know, we have two types of people that come on this show. The one thing they share in common is they're all driven and they're all successful and sure. they all gotten there in relatively short order. But you can tell, and it's not good and it's not bad, it's just different. You can tell the, the purebred entrepreneurs, guys who are flipping cars in high school, like you can tell that you're cut from that cloth vis a vis someone else who works their way up and becoming a C level executive at a publicly traded REIT who may have grown up maybe a little bit better students than guys like you and I were in school or may have worked their way up the corporate ladder because that's what their parents did and they saw management as something that they really wanted to be as opposed to a true entrepreneur. Again, there's nothing wrong with it. People yep. are cut from different cloths. There's no disputing which cloth you're cut <laughs> from. Very similar to what so I entrepreneurial am. zeal and passion behind everything. I'm not an inside-the-box person or an inside-the-box thinker. So you obviously did well in the School of Hard Knocks flipping cars. How did you do in the classroom in high uh, school? And I was actually always a really good student. In okay. fact, I ended up at Tulane through scholarship, academic scholarship. How did you have time to flip cars and get your grades right? And I went to a very intense high school that taught you a lot about managing your time and work ethic, as well as being principal. It's Montgomery Bell Academy in Nashville. It's a tremendous network of folks. I was blessed to have the opportunity to go there, despite not being from the area where that high school was based. Uh, So I commuted in and actually had a hardship to commute in uh, for school in order to attend that high school. Wow, And that's been a really good foundation of time management, hard work, networking, and another situation where I'm, I'm a bit of a mutt, a bit of a misfit, right? Many of the students there were you know, legacy students and students from a, an extremely upper class upbringing where I was a bit more middle class. So exposure while being a little bit different leads to a more creative thinking. Yeah. It sounds like, did you know at the time that it was a great school and that you appreciated it the way you do today? Or has it more, been more hindsight because you didn't know any different? But like that's how it was for me. I went to a great school and I knew it was a good school as a kid, but when I think back on my education now and really how much it set me up for college, I look back sometimes, I'm like, damn, like I was really lucky to go there. I mean, you have similar... I, I absolutely feel very lucky. I knew it was a good school and a good choice. My family's been academically oriented. You know, my aunt was a Fulbright scholar, oh, wow. perfect SAT Yale situation. Both of my grandparents were professors at, at Penn State. So, and with time in the Northeast, uh, I had a few choices. I said, okay, I can try and go to Phillips Exeter, Phillips Andover, one of the really elite boarding schools, or I can find some place to be in Nashville close to what's now home in a community that I've built that I think will pay dividends in the long run. 
for better or worse, I chose the MBA and it's been really good for me. How old were you when you made this decision? My mom is on Facebook a lot now. And she had a friend that uh, connected with her that uh, I hadn't known since I was three years old. Uh, This is in Connecticut at the time. She said, what company is Kevin president of now? It's been that sort of progression for me. So that was in middle school, probably my seventh grade year when uh, we were writing letters into colleges. And I was looking at very elite colleges and the counselor said, might you want to be a little bit more realistic? And I said, this is not going to be the academic outcome for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. So you go down to Tulane. Did you know you wanted to be in real estate at that time? I knew I wanted to be in business. I wasn't sure in what field of business. I was participating in in real estate through college with flipping condos and, and houses and whatnot. Very simple sort of a situation. There was an area where it's all primarily elderly folks and one-level condos where they needed some sweat equity and renovation to bring them up to snuff. And there was a very clear differential for where they would trade renovated versus not renovated. And I was willing to put in that work. So you did the sweat? Oh, yeah. Wow, good for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very limited capital to do it. A few thousand bucks, but uh, amazing raw dollar returns for a kid in college. Right, so you made good money. What year are we in, roughly? That's 2003, 2004. Okay, so the market was right for it because... Timing matters in this business, I found out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good time to do it. And so you graduated from Tulane in 04. Graduated from Tulane in 2006. So So you're you're a freshman and sophomore to doing this stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, That that sort of time frame. All while bouncing a a social life, I'm sure, along with an incredibly dedicated academic. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, folks don't know this about me and don't believe it, but I was a valedictorian at Tulane uh, A.B. Freeman School of Business. I remember going into the Career Center. I like this outcome, right? I remember going into the Career Center, showing them my resume to critique. They looked at me, looked at the resume, looked at me and said, you don't look that smart. <laughs> but hey, that, that goes to what I think is really valuable, right? It's more valuable to have the social skills, right? And be 92% on the technical side of the equation than to be the 99.9 percentile technical guy that is truly other level, but can't interface with anybody, can't explain anything, can't network, can't have the relationships to make things happen. So I somehow am very blessed with the ability to relate and connect with people while still having a a pretty reasonable technical side of the equation. One thing you definitely possess is humility. I think you, I mean, you're valedictorian. You were an amazing student growing up. Like This is a rare breed. I mean, usually, and it fascinates me that you've been able to pull this off where... And I always get fascinated by it too. And you have people who are extremely academically bright like you are and have the, the chutzpah, the charisma to run around and schmooze at these networking events. I mean, I see you're the life of life of the room like some of the other leaders are in our industry. And so you're clearly a dynamic guy, which we'll get into how your background fits into where you are now. So sure. and an important thing to think about there is any business is a people business, right? So those skills are transferable to anything you do. And I kind of knew that and wanted to make sure that I would fit in with a broad group of people. And I think certainly moving around a bit when I was young and being open to new ideas and new concepts uh, helped with that. Yeah, for sure. That's why I always ask people about their backgrounds because you can get to the end of an episode and and think back to your background being applicable or the other people that I've had the pleasure of interviewing so far. And it adds up, it all makes sense. So, all right, so back to your story. So you finish up at Tulane you know you want to get into real estate at this point because you're already in it. I mean, you'd flipped some, some condos, some single unit stuff during yeah, college. Yeah, so I, what I made the next? determination that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to be an entrepreneur in the real estate side of the equation, right? 
Thankfully, the banking jobs that come your way when you're top of the class finance, uh, you know, move to New York and all of that, those are the traditional track. And that's not at all the track that I wanted to take. And I made that known that that wasn't the track that I, I wanted to take. And it was through a, a very interesting program they have at Tulane called the Birken Road Reports, where you actually come out as a published equity research analyst of their business school because you're covering stocks across the Southeast that are under rocks, but part of the New York Stock Exchange. So Peter Raschuti, the former treasurer of the state of Louisiana, started that program at Tulane. And I would say he's a very similar personality to mine with an intellect, uh, you know, put a 10X on mine. Do me a favor, next time you and Peter get together, just invite me, I'll be a fly on the wall. Oh, it's wild. It's wild. He's a great guy. So through that program, my business partner's former REIT, uh, he was CFO of uh, the Sizler companies, was a, a stock that was covered by the Berkner Report. So he built a relationship with Peter as well. And after he got proof of concept and was ready to scale with the PMAP platform, he came to Peter and said, hey, I'm ready to have some help scaling this platform. And uh, Peter said, I'm going to give you one resume and you're going to love him. Wow. That's a big recommendation from Peter. Absolutely. Huge break for you, it sounds like, as a byproduct of your hard work. And so you were an analyst how long? So interestingly enough, I came in with the intention of being an acquisitions analyst. But if you think about the timing, right, 2006, 2007, hot, 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 you're thinking about, you know, hey, what might be coming in 2007? Like writings on the wall. Did you know at that, at your youth, that, I mean, you're 21? Absolutely absolutely. not. I do not have a crystal ball. In fact, uh, interestingly enough, Bob, my my business partner, ran a bifurcated read that did multifamily as well. And we both, in our infinite wisdom, decided uh, in 2010 that multi was trading a little bit too expensively. (laughs) So, no, I have no sense of crystal ball, just uh, good old-fashioned hard work and fundamentals. (laughs) There you go. Let's get back to your story. So you leave the analyst role at what time? Yeah, so I guess acquisition side of the equation, very briefly, as acquisitions dried up, as, as financing dried up, and, and capital sources dried up in the midst of the, the Great Recession. And this is probably the, the major turning point in, in my career path in general, right? To have a taste of what it's like when things are easy, but then to really cut your teeth and grow up in what can go wrong, right? It shapes a whole perspective. So I transitioned uh, very quickly to handling a lot of asset management and leasing, leasing being the lifeblood of the income stream and and the industry, right? I mean, without tenants knowing about your property and the opportunities to be there, you can have a 50% occupied center that should be under any normal circumstance, 100% occupied. Is what you like to buy. That's exactly right. We've uh, <laughs> makes we, two of us. we've performed with those stories uh, extremely well historically. Yeah. So you jump in the waters. You're getting to see all types of exposure in the business. Yep. You consider. I love your perspective, by the way. You considered your big break, sort of in a weird way, the height of the recession because you got to dive into and get in and cut your teeth in leasing, That's asset management. Absolutely right. Like that characteristic, I think right there sums up your attitude and success. So briefly, the height of the recession comes yeah. and everybody would find a reason to complain, fold in the towel, maybe go find something else to do, a more cushioned salary job somewhere because yep. you were certainly qualified to do so. And I'm listening to you tell your story. And like, yeah, that was my big break. I got to get into the operations side of the business. Yeah, huge opportunity. I was drinking from a fire hose, getting to touch, see and feel every aspect 
because there was so much change. It was such a dynamic time. And frankly, I feel like a big break has been the so-called retail apocalypse that PMAT being a, a secondary market, middle market, private capital player has not experienced the broad brush pain that the media seems to paint retail with, right? There are different silos. There's uh, our open air necessity and off price based sort of goods. Uh, there's enclosed malls, there's single tenant net lease, there are all these nuances. But right. for what we've done, which is the open air, off price, discount, necessity, and grocery anchored centers and secondary markets, there's a tremendous disconnect between what you see on the street versus what you hear with the retailers. So being private capital, we were able to be the speedboat to the institutional aircraft carrier and buy fundamentally sound assets with well-performing tenants at sustainable health ratios and below market rents and markets that are actually really solid markets with pent-up retailer demand, but for one reason or another, temporarily out of favor with larger institutional groups. So again, most people look at it as an, as an issue or a downplay to the, the industry. You see it as an opportunity. That's exactly right. There are ways to find opportunities. And a broad thesis that, that I've always had is, look, macro market inefficiency creates micro market opportunity for a nimble, flexible, creative, passionate, and persistent player. And I'm not going to hide my bias toward what you guys are doing. I think there's a few groups in our industry that are privately owned that are cleaning up everybody else's lunch with PMAP being right at the forefront of it and buying as you say, well-positioned secondary market located power centers or grocery anchored centers across the country. And there's no reason why they should be trading at the cap rates that they are. And the only reason why that they are is because they're in St. Louis or they're in Cincinnati or they're in Dayton, as opposed to Dallas, Houston, New York, or LA. Strangely enough, I think those are all markets where you and I have both individually had success, (laughs) despite them being out of favor, had tremendous success, actually. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it blows my mind, and it's sort of like correcting the retail apocalypse thing, and I correct people all the time, but like at the same time, you know what? If the mantra is going to still remain out there, like I'll just continue to take advantage of the opportunities, and you guys have done that literally at a 10x fold I have. I mean, your transaction sizes are astounding, especially with how lean and mean you guys run your shop. I mean, you've got... You know, you guys are taking down $20, $25 million deals. And I've heard you say something in passing yesterday, and I'm going to put it out there for everybody to hear. And this is a shameless plug for PMAT. You guys have never dropped a deal, right? Yeah, since PMAT's inception in 2003, we have never executed a contract and not closed on a deal. So that 1,000 batting average is you know, part of our secret sauce, yeah, right? It, you guys don't pay the most. It, I mean, you're correct. like Zig. Zig does not pay the most. We are absolutely not the high bidder on an openly marketed asset. But if folks openly market an asset, have price discovery, and they end up getting retraded down to normally lower than what would have bid in the first place because we invest our due diligence up front and only pursue assets where we have a high likelihood of close, then they end up coming back to us saying, okay, we want certainty of close. We want ease of transaction. We know you're going to provide it. This is the number. Can you do it? And in those circumstances, we turn around and give extremely quick response time. Right. I think that's that's part of the value too, is that you guys act quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, private family owned offices, like, you know, family offices like you guys and like like Zig is, is if you aren't nimble and you don't respond quickly, like you got no shot because yeah, absolutely. if they're looking purely at your resources, you know, you have institutional competition out there. Yep. So you guys are doing something that sounds relatively straightforward and focused in theory, but yep. you're executing on it and it's you're out executing on it compared to 
the average buyer of these assets and it shows in your success. And I, I can't commend you guys enough for it. So we've been truly blessed with some great capital relationships, some great REIT relationships, some great tenant relationships. And it, it all goes back to, I mean, similar to executing on 100% of the deals we've put under contract since inception. It's a do the right thing mentality, right? Yeah. We don't need someone to lose for us to win. And we don't care that somebody makes money after the fact, we execute our business plan. They execute their business yeah, plan. We talked you about create this a happy ecosystem where you can pursue something programmatically again and again and again. I have a long runway in this career, and it's a small industry. And the partnerships that we're making now are going to run decades, and it's going to be generational through passing you know the PMAT name and PMAT legacy down. How many properties have you bought with that thousand batting average? How many uh, assets have well, you guys closed on? Under 50, over 40. Okay, so you're in the 40s. That's an insane hit streak, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're how old? I'm 36. Absurd. <laughs> Absurd success story. Again, like I'm tickled that the people and humbled that the people who have decided for whatever reason to join me on this podcast. I mean, it's like as I continue to go on with this, the entrepreneurs and executives that I'm interviewing are getting younger and their stories are equally as impressive. It's insane. And it blows my mind how quickly you guys have scaled the business and done it the right way. I mean, batting a thousand percent is, is incredible. So kudos to you guys for that. Now, all that being said, sure. you got to have an embarrassing story for me from when you were first getting started. Yeah. I mean, I know you're like Mr. Perfect academically <laughs> and this guy with all this charisma, but you had to screw sure, up once. Sure. Let's see some embarrassing stories. We only need one because I'm sure there's plenty out there. Right? Yeah, sure, sure. So, I mean, look, coming from the uh, the, the very start, my, my interview with my now business partner, I showed up dressed to the nines, you know, for uh, an investment banking style interview, right? This is an entrepreneur that I'm going to interview with. I don't realize it's it's at his house, oh, right? I show up dressed to the nines, ready to go, and he's in gym shorts, <laughs> right? And this is the culture that Bob was trying to cultivate. It was a smart and intentional move on his part. Right. And uh, he says, well, there's your first ding. Don't ever wear a suit to my house again, Dude. right? So we're not about the pretense, right? We're about rolling up the sleeves, working together, and working with people you like to figure out the right thing to do. And it doesn't have to fit in a box that's pre-described. It's a big circle that says, do what makes sense and what makes money. Right. So that was a moment I was mortified, mortified. But it, it ends up being a teachable moment to me where, hey, this is a guy that, that gets it. My, my partner, Bob Whelan, he is the guy that's, that's building something unique and somebody that I want to work with. And I think 20 minutes into the interview, we both knew this is going to be a really good marriage. Right. And you guys have been married, let's call it, how long now? Yeah, it's uh, almost 15 years now. Wow. <laughs> wow. I bet time seems like it's flying. Absolutely. You blink and three, four years have gone by. So you're a unique case because you basically got your dream job slash got to the point in your career, title-wise at least, at like 22. Yeah. So look, I, did, I wasn't president of the company until post-recession. So call it whatever, 2013, uh, 2014. Right. So at that point, you're 28. Uh, sure. In, in my 20s. But in my defense, my business partner was a 29-year-old CFO of a New York Stock Exchange REIT. So he is also an outlier. <laughs> for, for sure. For sure. So your story is a little bit unique. But all that being said, I still think you have plenty of wisdom to dawn on to some of our listeners. So I'll kind of just throw some rapid fire questions. Sure, let's do it. That's cool. 
How do you navigate your weaknesses? You hire for your weaknesses. And we like to run our shop lean and mean. So it's mostly strategic partnerships with folks, right? Even if we leave a little bit of money on the table, which we very much admittedly do, we are not fee heavy. We are extremely fee light, but you hire the right folks that have the strengths that you lack. So you can spend the most time in your zone and do the things that you're the most passionate about, that you enjoy the most and that you're better at than, than other folks. Great answer. Also pointing out that your team is just the three of you guys, right? You, Bob, and... Yeah, it's myself, Bob, and Benny. Benny is another Tulane grad that So he's well-educated. Yep, well-educated. Another guy that is very strong academically, but also very strong uh, interpersonally. And uh, we have a new hire coming on this summer as well. Another Tulane grad that I happened to mentor, and I had no concept that he would stay in New Orleans and work with us. I was recommending him to, you know, some of the C-suites or the REITs that I have relationships with to get him in the the big REIT route as his father was in uh, uh, banking in Chicago. And he said, no, I'd stay if I could work with you guys. And we jumped all over that. We feel really blessed to have him coming on. It's not shocking given your academic background coupled with your ability to schmooze. It's funny to me because you said hire your weaknesses. You only have couple other people in the office. And that's a testament to, A, that you really don't have that many weaknesses. As we've figured out by not you're doing, even I'm smart enough to come up to that conclusion. And B, it says that you guys, if you wanted to build out a huge platform, you easily could. I mean, it doesn't, sure. there's nothing stopping you from doing that. But it speaks a lot to the culture that you're building there. And Sure. I mean, but I mean, big picture for us, it's passion and it's principle. So as much as we want a good interpersonal mix, right? right. And not just folks are good interpersonally as a face of PMAT out interacting with uh, the rest of the ecosystem that we interface with, but also can be in the trenches with us, right? Because we do a lot of 16-hour days, right? Right. When you're doing quick response time to REITs, that $25 million asset is a rounding error to them, whereas uh, it's the most important thing in the world to our platform and our investors at that time. You need to be all hands on deck and you need to be ready to go when it's time to go. So... You want to be in the trenches with the right folks. And we hire character over competence. You you learn the competence side of the equation. You hire the right character. You strategically align yourselves with the right people. And we would rather make less money more happily with the right people than squeeze every dollar out. Says a lot about you. I mean, it all adds up to me as I've gotten to know you. <laughs> it is a long game. You're not kidding about that. What's the biggest, other than the recession, because that's obvious, right? Where you had to get into the operational side, but what was the big, what's another big curveball that you've faced in your career? So we originally, and this does tie back to the recession, so I promise I'm not using this as a cop-out. No, but you're, and by the way, that recession thing was a pretty big curveball. It, so it, I don't it happened you. to be large. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to the PMAP platform, we had a joint venture program with a Kimco Preferred Equity program. We had done extremely well with that program, and we had shown, you know, plus 40% IRRs to them on average, right? This is strong performance. And despite our individual performance, and this leads straight to, again, the the disruption and the so-called retail apocalypse, but despite the individual performance of, of us in that program and of that program in general, the street and their infinite wisdom said Kimco needed to shut that down and focus on their core right, of wholly owning assets, not through joint venture, not through preferred equity. So 40 RRR, I don't give a damn what you're doing. You can buy whatever you want with my money. That's what I like (laughs) to think. But, uh, you know, this is not on $2 billion of assets. So it doesn't move the needle for them, even if the returns are good. It's not enough raw dollar for them. So their crumbs are absolute feasts to to small private capital guys like me. 
So a huge curveball was having our, our main capital source dry up. So we went through a number of iterations. This is in the midst of the recession. And we landed on a couple of really good family offices that are very flexible and responsive and have absolute trust in us. And, and that's through open communication and transparency and the having a proof of concept and, and track record that we can fall back on and a sterling reputation. How'd you get mixed up with the family offices? Just through networking? Or? Yeah, th- through networking. Primarily some folks that I had grown up with and right. that had a good reputation of hardworking, good guy in general, and through some relationships in New Orleans as well. Probably not an accident that you went the private route after. Not at all. Yeah, <laughs> not out. at all. So th- that goes into the whole thesis of macro market inefficiency creates micro market opportunity. Yep. One of the pieces of wisdom that Bob got from the, the prior chairman of the REIT was uh, simply buy when the REITs sell and sell when the REITs buy. Pretty simple, yeah, pretty simple, so but it's, it's done well for us. Sometimes this business can be, it can come across as so complex and then there's times there it is, but Sometimes it can be so simplified. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely Somebody great. asked me the other day, what's your hold period? I said, I don't know. I tried to sell it when the property's worth the most. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So what's the craziest deal you've ever worked on? Craziest deal that we've ever worked on. And I, in fact, talked about it today. Previously, we had a development we were doing where TJ Maxx was inappropriately located within the market. They, they were standalone with a little bit of shop space and a corridor that, you know, it had the Walmart, but they were removed from the Walmart. And we had a major power center that we were redeveloping, uh, grocery anchored, has a lot of the good co-tenancy there. But TJ Maxx had some significant term on their lease. Oh, now the hair comes out. Okay, I'm like thinking to myself, sure, okay, sure. Relocating TJ to a perfect co-tenancy. This is down the fairway. Where's he going with this? Exactly. It's the term that would get in the way. But because we don't have a dividend that we have to pay, because we have the right flexible capital partners, we were able to give TJ Maxx, uh, I think it was just over three years of free rent in order to have them go ahead and go dark and relocate into our project. And in doing so, we had coattails from three or four other tenants that liked to co-tenant with TJ Maxx. So yeah, you were using TJ as a loss leader, essentially, to... Well, A, improve the credit profile of the shopping center because TJ has phenomenal credit. And B, you were able to go back to those other retailers that you would love to have with them and just make the project go from what sounded like it was already pretty good before to Grand Slam. Yeah, yeah. And at the end of the day, is it even a loss leader? Sure, you're giving up some free rent, but you're getting strong credit for the long term. So it's just a different long term sort of perspective. I mean, Certainly in, in terms of a immediate cash on cash play, right? It, it is, but real estate's also a vehicle to turn ordinary income into long-term uh, capital gains, right? So if you get the capitalized value of that rent anyways, it still pencils nicely and is not a loss. So what did you guys do? Sell the deal sooner and credit the NOI? I would say that's a common strategy of ours, right? If we uh, give some free rent as, as an incentive, we'll do a make whole at sale and get the capitalized value of the ultimate rent at the end of the day. And For those of you out there who are just getting into the business and and feel like we just kind of threw some major darts out there and it was in a different language, I'd encourage you to email me directly. I'm happy to kind of walk you through the what could really sound like Chinese, but once you hear it explained out, it's it's actually pretty simple. We're using big fancy words that when you think about the definition, the application, and they're pretty simple processes. Yeah, learning the lingo of an industry is important and something that takes time and something that folks kind of hold dear as their uh, competitive advantage because other folks just don't speak it. Get yourself a good mentor, someone like Aaron, perhaps, that can uh, help you navigate these waters if you're early in the business. Mentors, let's talk about that. Oh, yeah. 
Who are they? Who are they, I should say? And yeah. tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, being a mentor and being a mentee is is a critical part of who I am and, and where I am, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, Peter Raschuti was a mentor that hooked me up with Bob Wheatland, who is my partner and, and also a mentor. So every step of the way, I was mentored. I end up mentoring a guy that is coming on as a new hire for us. I had no agenda whatsoever other than I think he is a bright kid, went to the same university as me, and I'd like to help him in his career path. And uh, we just happened to be like-minded and aligned enough that uh, he might have shifted his mentality of where he might want to be and what he might want to do just in seeing what I do day in and day out and spending some time with him. That's amazing. And of course, your mom sounds like she was an incredible mentor. Look, and my father as well. I, I've said it a few times. I'm a huge mutt, right? But my father is the, the hyper-analytical guy that'll just go in a cave and, and tear through things to looking at values, right? right? My mother is the absolute social butterfly that will put people together. She loves nothing more than to put people together and it see that flourish. I mean, I've and and I have a passion for that too. Yeah, it shows for sure. It's hilarious. My mom is, she's uh, executive director of a nonprofit called Saddle Up in Nashville. Great cause. It's uh, equine therapy for developmentally delayed and disabled kids, right? Mm -hmm. And Chris Keeler from Burlington sure. actually met her at a major event that they throw and immediately was taking selfie pictures with her, sending me a photo saying, wow, your mom is awesome. Yeah. I get it now. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing to see her flourish, right? And to see the respect that she gets, uh, even with folks that I happen to know that I would never expect to meet her. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. It's really cool. Well, we're thankful that she passed that, that gene along to you because I'm sure you've connected more people in the room than you even know about today. I'm, we're here at Open Air Conference. Hopefully a lot more to come. Amen to that. And we both are fortunate to have so much time left in this incredible industry that we both owe it to each other and the people out there and to give it back to the industry and, and do that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, we need a lot more young talent to come into this industry. And I do worry that the headline risk of it has deterred folks, but it's a cool dynamic industry and it's doing what all industries do is adapt. Right. Right. The young folks can be on the forefront of that adaptation and come in and help to shape an industry even. Right. We talked about it a lot at Open Air about talent. The common theme came up that there is more, we need more young dynamic people to come into the industry. And I think something I certainly feel very passionate about because I, you know, I didn't have like a direct connect in, like my parents weren't in the industry yeah. or anything like that. And yours weren't either. And so like whenever I get the, that college student that reaches out to me via LinkedIn or that may be listening to this right now, I always take their calls. I yep. always answer. And yep. obviously you're doing the same and you are, I mean, selfishly on your end, you're, you're getting a great team member. It sounds like starting with you as a result of you just giving back. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With no intent to get anything out of it, just happened to come that way. And look, uh, that's the way we like to try and live our lives, not have an agenda about things, right? Do right by people and they'll do right by you. There are certainly a lot of egos in this business and there are certainly a lot of sharks in this business. Sure. We are very careful with who we choose to do business with. Sure. I don't blame you. I've seen and heard some poor stories. I've had a few that I'm fortunate that I've been able to surround myself with good people like yourself. Yeah, in the industry. absolutely. And we're out there and there are a lot of us and forming those right strategic partnerships and doing the right thing by people and creating that ecosystem, right? That's going to have a long runway. So affiliating yourself with great people, no matter what they do. I mean, you and I, in theory, have no reason to do any business together because you're a landlord and I'm a landlord and I buy income producing property and so do you. Sure. But we have a good relationship. Yep. 
And we were actually talking about yesterday how there's opportunities for us to work together. So I think it's pretty clear to the people who are listening out there, who whether if they've been in the industry for 20 years and just like Kevin Cush and want to hear what he'll say into a microphone at any given moment, <laughs> all the way to that college kid who's even exploring the idea of maybe getting into the industry that it's, yeah. it's good, there's good advice associated that we at least both echo that you should be partnered up and, and talking to good people all the time. What other advice do you have for someone who's either looking to break into the industry or someone who's maybe just a couple of years in who wants to take a, an entrepreneurial path or a C-level job type path that you've been able to succeed with and, and yeah. turn into? Network, 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 network. Never stop networking. 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 Right. Got it. Okay. Absolutely. And look, be persistent in it as well. Everybody's busy. Everybody's getting 300 emails a day. Everybody has uh, tons of phone calls coming in, phone calls from an unknown number. Hey, I'm not so sure I'm going to get that. I have a lot of things going on. Be persistent. When folks find the time, they'll reach back out to you. A lot of folks have a heart for mentoring and a heart for young people in this business. And I say this as I'm guilty of that same mentality and that same you know excuse. Oh, I was busy. I didn't get back. I, I feel bad about it. But I always do get back at the end of the day. Right. So be persistent. And in fact, that's a skill you're going to need in this industry. You are not, <laughs> not kidding through about that. Through. So, so <laughs> persistence, networking, great advice. And it's interesting because... The people who will have listened to multiple episodes of the show are going to say, well, I'm hearing the same things over and over. Give me something new. And I would combat that with, there's a reason why they're being repeated. I've had several people in yeah. here who are under 40 that own sizable organizations sure. like yourself or C-levels at REITs. I mean, it's not rocket science to execute yep. the right way. But you got to do it. You got to yeah. follow through with the work. So, and I wasn't coached at all. This is pure happenstance that yeah. it's the same advice. I mean, there's some tenets of being passionate, being persistent, yeah. networking, the whole true. Are you a reader? Do you read books? Yeah. Yeah. I figured that. I didn't know if you'd burn out after your reading days in academia when you were <laughs> valedictorian, but what's one book that changed your life? That changed my life? Wow. There have been books that I recommend. In fact, I'm cultivating a reading list for folks that are interested in commercial real estate and in different books that I wish I had read at the infancy of my career rather than now. In fact, I have lists that I have uh, I'd Jack. To, I'd uh, happy to be helpful. Yeah, yeah. But there's a book it may be a cheesy name, but the material and just the context behind what is being shared really is actually a value from an entrepreneurial mindset. It's uh, crushing it in apartments and commercial real estate. Okay. Right? Uh, not not Gary Vaynerchuk's Crushing It, which is also a, a very good book. Yeah, we get a right? bonus book. I like <laughs> for, it, right? for, for sure. But crushing it in apartments and commercial real estate. And it really helps with understanding the entrepreneurial mindset behind real estate ownership. Is it like get into the nitty gritty of like X's and O's as far as like how to put together deals with numbers? Or is it like, this is the mindset you need to have? Like, what's the... It is less mathematical, right? Than it is kind of culturally and process-wise. Hey, here are ways to start out on a small scale mm -hmm. and perspectives to have. Sure. Awesome. So I'm going to piggyback off your recommendation because sure. I can do that. Yeah, absolutely. My show, right? Yours sounds more qualitative. I'll give everybody out there a quantitative book because we're, we're on an entrepreneurial path right now. Yep. I mean, that's the path that you know. That's the path I know. Sure. Gary Rappaport's book, Oh yeah. Investing in Retail Properties. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was like a Torah or a Bible for me when I was considering going out on my own and, and learning the, the math and structuring partnerships. So I think between Kevin's recommendation and Gary's book, I would highly recommend for those of you who want to own real estate one day to kind of take these two paths and, and then also reach out to a guy who's very reachable like Kevin. Yep. He, he may take his time getting back to you because he's got like, 50 deals in his in his pipeline and a bunch under contract that he's going to close because he has a thousand batting percentage, but he will get back to you eventually as I know he's always done with me at least. And, and I can tell you that I'd be happy to help as well. So 
The last question I'll leave you with, and this one's a little deep, so I apologize. Okay. Because I know we usually just laugh when we're together. But, hey, sure. So you are 36. Yep. And you have a long way to go in this industry. Absolutely. And you've already reached a pretty high point early in your career. So in theory, you're only going to go up from here, which I cannot wait to witness. And one day, you're not going to be in the business anymore. You are inevitably like everybody else in this world, as much as it sucks to say, you're going to die. This is getting deep. <laughs> yeah, it is. And ICSE is going to be like, the legend, Kevin Cush, is no longer here. He retired, whatever. Maybe you decide to go move to a beach somewhere and, and hang out, which I don't see you doing. But may, maybe you do, but I still I think, like to work. Yeah, I, I don't see you doing. But let's assume you get out of the industry for whatever reason one day, many, 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 many decades from now, let's call it at least 100 years from now. Perfect. <laughs> what do you want your legacy to be like in the industry? Like, I know you want your family to love you and everybody wants to remember to be a good person, but what do you want your commercial real estate legacy to be like? Sure, sure. That I was principled and that I was passionate. That simple. Short, sweet, yeah. and 100% accurate. I love it. Yeah. On that note, perfect time to let you get back to doing your thing because I know you're a busy guy. Kevin, totally inspired from what you guys have been able to build at PMAT. As I've said to you in private, I'll say it to everybody that's listening out there. If and when I ever do have the resources to be chasing the, the product type that you guys are working on in the, you know, the $25, $35 million fundamentally sound secondary market capital range, I would want to do it because I believe in not only what you guys do, but more importantly, how you guys do it. I'm Absolutely. definitely your biggest fan on the sideline here. And it's been an honor to have you on. I really appreciate you carving out the time for me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to a long relationship for many years and uh, find some business to do with the Zig platform. There you go. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for listening to Limitless. If you like what you heard, it would mean the absolute world to me if you took a little bit of your time to subscribe. If not, perhaps even leaving a review, good, bad, or indifferent. And please feel free to reach out to me directly on my LinkedIn page or on our website, zuckerinvestmentgroup.com. 